The Influencer's Edge is brought to you by the Invisible Influence Series. If you're ready to massively increase your sales by leveraging the power of subconscious persuasion, then make sure you text the word COMPEL to 411-321. That's COMPEL to 411-321. And if you're outside of the United States, then use WhatsApp and text the word COMPEL to 1-909. 741-1321. Make sure you put in your best email address because that's how we'll deliver the goodies. Welcome to the Influencer's Edge. This is the place where you come to get the latest breakthroughs, cutting-edge insights, tools, and techniques to leapfrog over the pack in sales, persuasion, and influence. Be sure you visit our website at www.theinfluencersedge.com. And while you're there, subscribe to us via your favorite network. Now sit back, tune in, and enjoy today's episode. Okay, welcome to The Influencers Edge. I am so fucking, and this is not a family show, so fucking excited to have (laughs) our guest today because she is not only a genius, she's a badass. We have had, a, a, it's true, Lena, our guest today is Lena Cisco, and we have had some badasses on the show before. Our mutual friend, Chase Hughes, who you would agree is a badass. Yes. Uh, and then, I don't know if you're aware of this, we had Richard Bandler, the co-founder yeah. of NLP. I know who he is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was on the show. So you are a badass oh. on, on that level. So Good. Lena has so extensive a biography. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of it. So Lena Cisco is a former Naval Intelligence Officer and Marine Corps Certified Interrogator. Were you actually in the Corps yourself? No. So I got into a special program because at the time, Navy didn't have interrogators, but Marines did. And since they're our sister service, it was the first time they were allowing women to go through the training to augment their interrogators. Okay. They would say that you're... The junior, you're the junior service. Okay. Oh yeah, I know. Served in the global war on terror, conducting hundreds of interrogations. Hmm. She's a published author, international keynote speaker, and former TEDx speaker. Uh, there's so much here. Lena has been training the Department of Defense, government agencies, law enforcement, special forces. I want to hone in on that one. Private sector industries in both language, interviewing and interrogation, statement analysis, detecting deception, elicitation, personality profiling. What can't you do? Can you levitate? Can you fly? I can't play piano. Huh? (laughs) I can't play piano. I'm trying. And change leadership. Lena certified in organizational change management, received a certificate in psychology of leadership from Cornell. Look at you. Oh, my goodness. She has a master's from Brown University in archaeology and a BA in anthropology. So let's get going here. There's some interesting things. How did you jump from archaeology to being an interrogator? Did you find that your training in archaeology had any influence or preparation for doing what you do, interrogating, or is that completely separate? 
No, here, here's the here's the connection. So when I was an archaeologist, I was an investigator, right? Because I'm digging yeah. up the earth, I'm picking up pieces of whatever, trying to put together a past life way of a civilization of a person. So when I became an interrogator, which was completely by accident and unplanned, never set out to be an interrogator. Um, when I became an interrogator, I realized, but well, this is just like you know being an investigator just like when I was an archaeologist, because I'm trying to get bits of information from a human now instead of the ground or, you know, some tangible object and piece together a bigger part of the story. So they really do take the same analytical mindset. Okay, fair enough. I want to dive into some of this stuff. So military intelligence, working for the Department of Defense, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you had people you're interrogating in Gitmo, for those of you who don't know, Gitmo is, stands for Guantanamo Bay, where they kept so-called terrorists. And how were they classified? They were, were they were not uh, they were not soldiers, POWs who would be protected enemy combatants. By, so they were not protected by the Geneva Convention, correct? Well, so they were enemy combatants. They were classified as terrorists. They fell under Geneva Conventions because we operated in accordance to Geneva Conventions. So yes, Geneva Conventions did apply there. But things like Miranda and getting lawyers, that did not. All right. So many people, and I had this misconception we, when we had our first chat about a couple of weeks ago or 10 days yeah. ago. You see this in the movie. Uh, the movie Zero with Jessica Chastain when they were hunting for bin Laden, where they're yes. waterboarding people and they're putting them in stress positions and combining them to boxes. So many people think that military interrogation and that sort of thing involves... Torture. Torture. Waterboarding. Yeah, coercion. So yeah. my first question is, did you ever see that taking place? Were you ever witness to that? No. You never saw it? Nope. And... As I said to you, I'm a coward when it comes to pain. I would immediately <laughs> spill the beans, tell them everything. My fear would be they wouldn't believe me and they would torture yeah. anyway. So yeah. what is your opinion as far as is that aside from the moral issues and our mm -hmm. personal disgust at, at it, yeah. is that any kind of way to elicit effect, accurate information or is it all a waste of Hollywood. time? It's Hollywood. It's a waste of time. And it's disgusting. Just what you said. Um, I do everything in line with my moral compass and I'm not ever going to cross that. I don't care what you dangle in front of me. So when I was at Gitmo and all of DOD, so you have to think of this CIA is over here doing their own thing. Yeah. They had black sites. It all came out in the news, whatever they were doing, they were doing. I think it was poor leadership, horrible guidance, and a lack of skill as to why they did that. You go over to this side, you have DOD. DOD were highly trained to go through long months of training to become an interrogator, not a guard. We are legitimately trained in the rules of law of land warfare. We are trained in accordance to Geneva Convention. We are trained in approach techniques and blah, 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 right? So we have all these months of training to prepare us to do this job. We would never need to go to torture. And it's illegal. And coercion is just as bad, and it's illegal. So what I would tell all of my students and everybody that worked for me down in Gitmo is, listen, every day that you are here, you need to be accountable for everything you say, you do, you hear, and you see. Because one day, 
you're going to be accountable for that on a stand somewhere. And you want to be able to say in front of the world, yes, I did this and I didn't do that. I saw this and I didn't see that. And so if you feel comfortable going to bed every night, looking back on, yeah, I did everything in accordance to my moral compass that day. You're good to go. And thank God I followed that because I was on the stand years later as a prosecution witness. But yeah, that's Hollywood. Um, but CIA has their own thing going on. <laughs> now, here's the question I promised I would ask you. And we're going to get into your applications for business and for training people in the military and law enforcement. That, But here's the question you probably have not heard. You've obviously in your career, not just interrogated terrorists, and you probably interrogated people who were suspected of committing some pretty nasty crimes, correct? Yes. So how did you avoid your personal emotional or ethical judgments on what those people did? How did you carry in a lack, like, let's say... I don't know if you ever did this, but let's give you a hypothetical. Mm -hmm. You were interrogating someone who is a pedophile. You know, there's child slavery. There's tens of millions of children mm -hmm. being trafficked all around the world. Let's say you were interrogating someone who you highly suspected was guilty of that. How in the world do you put aside your own personal anger and disgust? Because tell me, first of all, tell me if I'm wrong. If you come in with anger and your own moral judgments, on a suspect, that's going to affect how you do your interrogation, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. It'll bias you. So how in the world did you train yourself and were you given any training on putting aside your moral judgments and your disgust? No, I call it a light switch and literally you have to just turn it off. And even when I was in Gitmo, I would be sitting across from someone screaming and yelling at me, threatening to hunt me down, kill me, kill my family, and that we deserve 9-11 and blah, 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 right? You just got to let it roll off. It's like getting splashed with water in your face. It hits you, let it go, right? And when you, it's practice, just doesn't happen overnight, but when you actively practice that, shut down the emotional response, these are just words, and you need to do a job, and that job is going to get information that's going to help you stop all these hideous things from happening. It's gonna put people behind bars. And that is way more important than reacting to some rhetoric or some slang or whatever people are gonna yell at me. So you just, you have to put it aside, you tuck it away over here and you do your job. And you can ask a lot of military members because and I'm sure even Chase would even talk about this. You compartmentalize yourself. And so I would take all of that and I put it in compartment, I lock it up and I put it away. And then the other compartment, I am now focused on all my tactics, my rapport building, my detecting deception, my asking good questions, all for the purposes of gaining trust to get you to like me, to give me truthful information. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense, but it's not a complete answer. Let me push you just a little further yeah. to explain yeah. your answer. You've said you've got to lock it away and you've got to compartmentalize. Yeah. How specifically do you do that? Give me, for example, let me tell sure. you why I'm asking this question. So often, way back when, when I was a self-improvement seminar junkie, I would have gurus over and over say, you just need to learn from every experience. But they would never give a process it, for a technique. Right. And it drove me fucking Right. right. So, I hate that. I okay. Oh, that. It's, mm -hmm. no. Here's the process. Are you ready? It's so simple. Of course. Of course, I'm ready. Okay. Stop thinking about it. 
all ah. this is right. That's it. It's just your thoughts. We have this amazing thing up here that we can control, but most of the time it controls us because it's trying to keep this machine alive all the time, but we have to actively control it. So you tap into the thoughts you're thinking, you realize them, you say, oh, I'm thinking this, I'm disgusted with this human. And you stop thinking those thoughts. And when you stop thinking them and you change them to, now I'm going to build rapport with this guy. This guy or this girl is going to like me so much. They're going to end up at a bawling heap, crying at my feet, telling me the truth. You change your thoughts. Stop thinking these. Change your thoughts to new thoughts. And all of a sudden that changes your behavior because you know our thoughts are our behaviors. They impact our behaviors. So if I keep thinking one set of thoughts and I keep doing the same behavior, well, in order to change it, I just got to change the thoughts. All right. So let's dive, let's dive in here deeper. So yeah. let's say you're doing an interrogation of a suspected. We're going to map over into doing this in civilian work and how people yeah. can use work to improve their businesses and their sales ability and their personal relationship. We'll get there. So you're walking in to Gitmo and you're going to interrogate a suspected terrorist. Oh, yeah. All right. My vision in my head, and this could be Hollywood, is they're not unrestrained. They're restrained and somehow. They're wearing cuffs. You don't say uncuff them, correct? I do say that. You tell them to un... <laughs> but you're in personal danger. How do you... If they're furious yeah. and they kill people, yeah. how do you avoid being in personal danger in those situations? All right. Safety paramount, right? Personal safety, absolute paramount. So in my situation, and they vary, but... I'm going to take you back to 2002, and we're going to go inside an interrogation booth and get my right now. Are you ready? Going on oh, a journey. More than ready. <laughs> All right. So they are trailers. So they had about, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five, six, about, I think eight to 10 interrogation rooms, right? So you think of a long trailer. You could walk up the steps. And it's all rickety. You know, it's not that stable. It's just a trailer. And it has all these different rooms. The first room is where the guards hang out and they watch all the interrogation rooms being monitored on the video. Then there's the bathroom. Then you go in, you have your first set of interrogation booths and then you have an observation room. Then you have interrogation booths and you have an observation room. So when you go into interrogation booth, it has two of those, um, the two-way mirrors, right? It has lights, it has chairs, table, but there's also this metal, big, big metal bolt in the floor. And so when the detainees come in, they're wearing what we call the three-piece suit. So they have the chain around their waist, which goes to the shackles on around their ankles and to the shackles around their wrists. So they're, everything is connected. So when they would come in immediately, the guards take this one chain that goes from the middle of the waist and they secure it to the bolt in the floor. They're not going anywhere. Uh. Even if they drive, they're not going anywhere. Now, um, I didn't use any tables. I wanted belly button to belly button with my detainees because that's a great way to formulate a safe environment, build rapport, and have that team, right? Because it's not me against them. Never. It's us. It's we, even with my interpreter. So I made us feel like a unit, right? Um, to, again, to create that safe environment and to win their trust. So if they came in, depending on that quick up and down assessment head to toe, were they combative? Were they more passive? Were they aggressive? Were they docile? You know, how are they acting? I would sit them down, have them bolted me, into the floor. Let me, let me press pause, Lena. Can you go through yeah. those four categories again? Combative, passive, 
aggressive or docile. Okay. Right. And you can tell by, I'll give you an example. Some men would walk in all puffed up, looking around and then look at me and kind of dead eye me as if to say, who are you? Right. Okay. So maybe I'm going to keep their cuffs on and their wrist cuffs on and I'll have them sit down, bolted to the floor and I'll start the interrogation. And then maybe if they ease up a little bit, they relax. We have a good conversation. They're not spewing rhetoric at me. I'll call for the guard and have the handcuffs released. Sometimes if they came to the door and they're more slumped over, right? And just kind of shuffling along and kind of looked up at me and either smiled or just looked up without this anger expression, then maybe I would have them sit down and have the guard immediately take off the cuffs. But what I like to do is use this as an incentive. So the quid pro quo, right? I'm going to do something nice for you. You do something nice for me. And so I usually would say 20 minutes in, 30 minutes in, hey, do you want me to make you a little more comfortable? Can I take those handcuffs off of you? Wicked clever. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. But I was, oh, I never feared for my safety in the booth. All right. So let's talk about. I can understand, I've read so many books and gone to so many seminars, and people have so many different ideas about rapport. They think rapport is about getting the other person to like you or to love you, and they talk about silly things like mirror every gesture and Mm -hmm. repeat back what the other person said. So, uh, okay, so what is your definition of rapport and what is the usefulness of it? Because I'll tell you I'll tell you why I asked the question. Chase is someone who I deeply admire. Chase may say the more important thing than rapport is compliance. So do you think they're the same thing or is one part of the other? So the question is, how do you distinguish between rapport and Mm -hmm. compliance? Mm -hmm. And is compliance dependent on rapport? Yes. To answer that last question, yes. To answer the first part, if you have rapport, compliance will come. So if I have your trust, the truth will come. It's just, it's a no-brainer. You need rapport first. You cannot get compliance unless you have rapport. Now, is rapport getting someone to like you? Yeah, it could be. But for me, rapport is a connection. And when I have that bond with you, no matter what that is or what it was over, we feel connected. When you we feel connected, it kind of tips over into that similar to me bias. And if I like me and you're similar to me, well, of course, I'm going to like you. And so all of a sudden I start connecting to you and I start trusting you and I start opening up to you and I start bonding to you, right? And there's tons of biases out there. You have the bond bias, um, similar to me bias. You have um, the, um, the Velcro Teflon one, confirmation bias. There's so many biases, the halo horns bias, a huge one that can actually make communication go really bad. What did bad. you call that? What did you, the, the what? halo horns. When oh. we, before we get to know someone, we put a little halo on them and say, oh, they're so good. I like them so much. Or before we get to know someone, we put little horns on them and say, ugh, they look like this. They sound like that. I don't like them. Right? Sounds it's like a quick dating. judgment. Sounds it like is. Dating. It's totally <laughs> dating. Totally. Yes. I'm surprised you didn't write about this. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so rapport for me is a connection with a human and it's creating a, I call it a safe environment. It's a comfortable environment where that person feels, number one, I want to be open and honest with you. I want to tell you the truth, no matter how incriminating it is, no matter how embarrassing it is, I want to do this because eventually it's going to make me feel better than I do right now. So that's that rapport for me. All right. Here's, 
a little bit. This is partially a question and partially pushed back. If okay. I, this is what I think. I've never been interrogated, except that's not true. I've traveled to Israel twice. And when Ooh. you go to Israel, you don't just, they, it's not like the TSA. Everybody gets a brief interrogation and okay. interrogators are always female, always without exception. I don't know whether that's because they feel females have an intuition that males don't, or they appear less threatening, but they're really good. They'll ask you to tell the story. I traveled once with my girlfriend from Denmark at the time. They separated us and they asked, how did you meet? And I told the interrogator, we met in Copenhagen at a seminar. And then halfway through, she said, so you met in London? I said, no, I told you we worked at Copenhagen. We met in Copenhagen. And then she had me tell parts of the story backwards, oh, yeah. et cetera, yeah. et cetera. You're familiar yeah. with these. Techniques. Oh, yeah, yeah. I teach all those techniques. All right. So Timelining. All right. So mm -hmm. I understand that. But even in that situation, even though I knew I was mm -hmm. telling the truth, there was nothing wrong with anything I did. I still yep. felt some fear. And I don't yeah. know what that fear was about. So yeah, we'll get to interrogating. We'll get step back to interrogating criminal suspects and yep. terrorists in a minute. But how do you distinguish between someone who's being deceptive and someone who's just freaking fearful of authority? Yeah. Well, and that's the problem because most people don't know how to differentiate the two. And every course I hold and all of my trainings, I teach people that. So here it is. It's very simple. Are you ready? So yeah. simple. I like to make things easy <laughs> if oh, you good. haven't noticed. <laughs> all right. So you have a person who's super, super nervous. And they look really uncomfortable. Maybe you did ooh, in that interrogation, right? So you're uncomfortable, you're nervous, you're exhibiting. I'm talking with my arms, so I'm hitting everything. I'm Italian. And so I see that and I'm like, okay, Paul's a little uncomfortable. He's a little nervous. But if I don't see and hear any indicators of deception, the number one most accurate being that behavioral incongruence, then you're probably just nervous. Now, if I look at Paul and he's nervous, and he looks jittery and anxious. Oh, and he is displaying incongruent behaviors, both verbal and nonverbal, and using typical deceptive patterns of speech. Paul's probably nervous because he's not telling the truth. Let's and talk about this. Let's talk about those patterns of yeah. deceptive speech. I know a couple because I've seen this thing called statement analysis. And mm -hmm. frankly, that's the one thing I'm a little bit skeptical about. Oh. Uh, I, I don't remember my exact reasons, probably because I saw it on a whacked out show called Coast to Coast, where they talk about Bigfoot. And um, well, then, yeah. Okay. Bigfoot and statement analysis shouldn't go together. And uh, grandma got kidnapped by aliens, which oh, okay. well. I will talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> so the aliens. Mm -hmm. So I think I remember one of the statement analysis indicators of deception is when you repeat a question before you answer. Is that mm -hmm. correct? It is correct. Yeah. And what what purpose does that serve? If I repeat your question before I answer it, what do I think that's going to? How's that going to be serving me? Or it's going to it's going to buy you a couple of seconds to think of what to say. So I tell people this: truthful people don't necessarily have to think of what to say. They will usually immediately respond back and answer the question. 
They don't have to dissect it in their head and think, oh, should I say this? Should I say that? How am I going to sound? Right? Truthful people usually will respond immediately back. Liars, if you decide to lie about answering that question, you need a couple of seconds to get your thoughts straight. Because again, there's so many differences. So truthful people think different thoughts than liars. Liars are thinking, hey, are they going to believe me? Is Paul going to buy this story from me? How, how, you know, how often do I have to keep up this lie? Does it sound believable and credible? Truthful people think, how much information can I give Paul right now? So he understands the story fully and it makes sense to him. Now, truthful people are getting their information from their episodic memory, which is our autobiographical memory. Liars are getting their information from another type of memory because lies can't be created out of nothing, right? So they're reaching into their semantic memory and they're pulling down chunks of information and now they have to bridge it together with a, the unknowns and create this lie, which is why typically lies don't have a lot of guts to them because you're only pulling down bits of semantic memory and threading them together to make a story. So when you repeat that question, it buys the liar's brain a few minutes to get all those all the pieces together to make sense and come out. So let me do the pushback. No, let me ask, first of all, what do you define semantic memory? I don't know what that means. So semantic memory is your memory of known things, right? So as we're raised on earth, we can look at a stop sign and know what it means. We don't have to keep learning it over and over and over again. Um, semantic memory is, and I use this example all the time because in my classes, I'll have at the icebreaker day one is people write two stories, a truthful one and a lie. We use them for statement analysis later on and then hot seat exercises. When I did this lie, I lied about taking a cruise to Alaska. All right. I've never been to Alaska. I've never seen pictures of it, but I know Alaska from my semantic memory. I know it exists. Right. I know there's an international space station floating around 300 miles up in the sky. I've never been on it, but I know it's there. So if you, if I had to lie about visiting Alaska or the ISS, I can only get what I know from my semantic memory and try to put together a story that sounds credible. Does that make sense? Yes. And, but as you were talking about semantic memory, I know because I'm trained in NLP and I have 30 years experience in it, you looked up and you reached up like that. So are semantic memories accessed by looking up and your, yeah. illustrators, your illustrators also went like that. Correct? Yeah. So I'm an up person, right? I'm not right or left, like the, the iPad or movement, although I have been using iPad or movement analysis to detect truth and deception for over 20 years. And it is so perfect. You just have to baseline people. So I go straight up. I don't go to the right, I don't go to the left. I access both semantic and episodic. So it might confuse someone who's trying to detect deception, right? Like, well, she she went up in that story. Here's the thing. You have to be able on the backhand to ask those pertinent questions to go into the missing information in the semantic story. And when you ask me a question that I don't know, now my eyes are not going to go up. They're going to go everywhere else. So that's why you have to pay attention to these stories that people tell you and fill in the gaps by asking your good specific questions about the gaps of information. And wow. if they can't produce it, your, your lie unravels. I can see how this would be extremely useful for dating because oh. if they're accessing semantic memory or wherever, and you baseline them and you've got them well baseline and you ask them an important question, like, uh, have you, are you, what was your last relationship? And 
tell me, what did you learn from it? And they're showing that they're accessing their semantic memory rather than, what did you call the opposite of semantic memory? Episodic. That's okay. your autobiographical. You, you know, if they're accessing semantic and you baseline them, you're not getting the real story. That's a huge red flag. Am I correct in that? Well, again, they could be still eye accessing cues could go the same place. But what you have to do is listen to the one story that has richness of detail to the other that doesn't. Why does that one lack detail? Why does this particular answer lack the detail that you just gave me for this answer? And so if it lacks detail, then you have to ask that follow-up question for the missing information. And now, because most likely it's missing because it's not there, right? Now you will not see their eyes go to access the cues of any type of memory, whether it's episodic or semantic. Okay. Now I love pushing back. I love it. I love yeah. it. I love it. Yeah. I've also learned uh, from Chase and from other people that yeah. liars give too much detail. For example, if you say, where were you that night? They'll say, well, I stopped at my friend's house. We played bingo for 30 minutes. And then I went to the liquor store. I got this, that, and the other thing. Yes. So yes. how would you? How All would right. You okay. Yes and no. All right. Yes and no. A liar can leave out details. A liar can give a lot, but they're not giving details. They're giving something that I call fluff. It's nonsensical. It's nothing about nothing. I don't care about what you bought at the 7-Eleven. What I care about is where you were at at 9 p.m. when the drive-by shooting happened. So stop talking about non-pertinent, nonsensical stuff I don't need to know, fluff. And let's now get into giving me details about where you were at 9 o'clock. So How would you do that? How would you interrupt them? Would you say, hey, you're giving me fluff? How would no, you interrupt No, 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 no. I, I create a nice, comfortable environment. So I listen to your fluff. And I listen with a smile and I may be taking notes at the same time. And then I let you run and you end. And sometimes I will deal with people who want to keep dominating the conversation. So when you go to take a breath, I jump in. I'll never cut you off though. Never, ever. So when I jump in, I will say something like, Paul, that is interesting. I hear you. Let me ask you this and redirect. I love how your facial expression change went. You, and you kind of, oh, yeah. you didn't, I don't know if you detected it, you very slightly cocked your head as if you were, oh, yeah. as if you were listening. I have so much going on here. If my <laughs> facial expressions ever stop, you got a problem. I'm probably <laughs> lying to you. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's the big pushback. I've yeah. done a lot of work with healing and with healing yeah. with trauma. I help people heal from trauma. I've looked at oh, various wow. different methodologies because you know my former career Ross Jeffries the guy who teaches men to get laid it's yes. an open secret and many of my students are are profoundly traumatized but yeah. one of the things I've yeah. learned is that all memory is reconstructed there's no such thing yeah. as a fully accurate memory all memory yes. is subject to reconstruction absolutely so I'm, absolutely. So I'm going to push back there yeah. since all memory, is, it, all memory is reconstructed yeah how do you deal with that? How, All right. That? And that's, that's the problem, right? Because, and you can look up uh, was Elizabeth Loftus. I always get, it's not care. Yeah. Elizabeth Loftus. So yeah. tons of work, right? In the misinformation effect, which I teach too in the Innocence Project. But, and she explains it really well. So your memory is created by chunks. It's like a puzzle. And so if you ask me, Lena, what did you do last night? 
I'm pulling down the pieces of the puzzle, putting them together. And I tell you what I did. And it's pretty easy because it was just last night. But if you ask me what I did a year ago on my birthday, oof, I got to dig back, get the little bits of memory, pull them down, construct the puzzle and tell you. But here's the problem. Because it was a year ago and I'm over 50, right? Some of those bits of information are gone. They're not coming back. So now you'd be like, oh, Lena, that sounds interesting. But I don't know if I believe you because you skipped over some parts parts in that story. Well, it's because I don't know. I don't remember them, right? So here's the problem. You're talking to someone. You're like, oh, they're leaving out bits of the story. Are they lying to me by omission? Or are they telling me the truth? Go back to square one. Do you see in here indicators of deception? If you don't, they're probably telling you the truth. But if you do, now you have to dig in and use your questioning techniques to uncover the lie. Let's talk about some of those. Let's talk about the, some of those questioning techniques. I happen to be some like I was once falsely accused of murder and I was furious. The minute I was accused, my response was absolute fury. Yeah, that's uncontrollable, absolute Fury. Yes. Yes. So I, I, I want to get into asking the questions you just mentioned, but is that the kind of thing typically if someone is totally innocent, is that a typical thing that they respond yes. with fury? Yes. I see it so often. That tells me, oh, you have congruent, honest emotion. You're you're telling the truth. Because here's the thing: if you're gonna lie to me, liars can think of the story that they want to tell us. Liars will rehearse the story. They First of all, they create it from A to B and they create it in the present tense. So that's why their verb tenses will switch up here and there. They forget to rehearse it going backwards, which is why that interrogator in Israel said, well, tell it to me backwards, right? I use that technique. And they also forget to do one other thing. They forget to attach feelings and emotions to the lie. So one of my, what I call lie exposing questions, I have four of them, but one of them is, Paul, How did that make you feel when you were being interrogated? I was fucking furious. There you go. That's an honest response. But if Paul says, you know, I think I was furious. I bet I was furious, right? Or if you you show any I still get furious when I even think about it. Like you do this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was the most outrageous thing that ever happened to me. I, I won't get into details, but I was. That's crazy. Yeah, we can get into the details off the air. It was, <laughs> it was someone who committed suicide in my oh. apartment at the time, and his family did not want to believe that he committed suicide. He left a note. He called his girlfriend on the fucking phone and said, I'm going to kill myself, shot himself. And his family just didn't want to accept it. So, so they said, so let's blame. Oh, my gosh. And they said, his fingerprints are going to be on the gun. I said, of course, they're going to be on the gun. It's my fucking gun. And the cops oh. said, I'll, I'll just 30 seconds more. The cops said, well, the family would really like to have you fingerprinted. I said, of course, I'll do it. And like an idiot, I did, which I shouldn't have done. So let, let's get back to, mm-hmm. let's get back to someone is in a room. Mm-hmm. You're talking to this person and they know in the back of their head, if they answer you honestly, they're going to go to jail for mm-hmm. 30 years. Mm-hmm. How in the world do you get them to separate that huge fear, the consequence, so they'll tell you the answers that you want to get. I would think it's one thing to ask someone, 
a series of questions. And if they wind up telling you the truth, the consequences are small. Like yeah. maybe you'll be mad at them uh, for a day or two versus I'm going to go to jail possibly for life and never see the outside world. How in the world? This to me is a miraculous skill. I know it's not because I know you break it down for your clients, your corporate clients, everybody else. Yep. How in the world do you get that person to set aside that fear? Because that's a lot of fear. For me, if I knew that I potentially would go to jail, I would shut up. I would just say, lawyer, 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 Fifth Amendment, lawyer, lawyer. I'm not talking to any. I want my lawyer. Right. I shut up. All right. So here's the deal. Rapport. You got to have rapport. But here's the other thing. I need to discover your motivation. All right. What is going to make you feel motivated to want to tell me the truth? It could be so many different things, but I got to discover yours. And I'm going to use that. The other thing is inherently every single human being on this planet, every one of them, no matter what they've done, if they're of sound mind, inherently every human wants to be honest. And every one of us has a breaking point. I know I see that furrow. Every one of us. When I started off my career, Paul, I started with the highest stakes imaginable in the worst um, situation possible. These people didn't have to talk to me. I couldn't do anything to make them, right? All what I do you had mean they couldn't before, talk? What do you mean they couldn't talk to you? They were not- No, no, no they didn't have to. They didn't have to talk to me. They could have sat in my interrogation room like this. But okay. uh, they did not have to talk. Is right? that for legal reasons? They could have lawyered up and said Fifth Amendment. No, they didn't have any lawyers. No, it's just we can't make people talk. I know there's a book out there that says that. And I have techniques too. But it's you can't force people, right? You have to get them to want to talk to you. Well, the want comes with finding out motivation. I have something that I teach my clients. It's called the motivation equation, right? And it usually is discover the motivation, figure out their need. You'll get your want, which is the truth. If I want you to be truthful to me, I have to discover what's going to motivate you to give me the truth. And what do you need to do that, right? Motivation and need is going to get me my want. And so, and we've won through scenarios in my training to figure this out. And it's so simple. So I discovered that about you. And then based off of human psychology, everybody inherently wants to be honest. I have had people that I have sent to jail, okay, for 30 years saying, it felt so good to tell you the truth. You felt like my therapist. And I was like, anytime. Right? All right. So let's talk. You can't throw out that gold, those diamonds, without me polishing them a little bit with yeah. some pleasure. Yeah. All right. So how? what are the basic motivations that people have? And mm -hmm. how do you tie them? To me, needs and motivations sound so similar, they almost conflate in my mind. So there's two yeah. questions. What yeah. are the motivations that people have? Uh -huh. And how are they distinct? distinctive for from their needs at okay. like for example chase teaches pity the uh, they work off of pity the desire to appear strong the desire to uh appear intelligence i forget with the other two yeah. so let's talk about how do you discover their motivations and how does that differ from their yeah. needs so motivations i don't say there's four or there's five there could be 22 all right. But here's how I think of a motivation in the line of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. What's going to motivate them? So I'm looking at Maslow's hierarchy. Is it something that's food, shelter, safety, or is it something up here where it's all to do with their ego? 
right? And I got to figure out what that is. And now the inward focus, are they outward focus? So now I have my motivational pyramid that I base off of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And then I got to figure out, oh, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, what the need is. So I'll give you the, the easiest example. In Gitmo, right? When I discovered a motivation, a motivation would have been safety or a motivation. Yeah, this is a good one. So a lot of my detainees needed to feel safe in order to tell me the truth. Well, okay, I can hear that, but I don't really understand it. Why, why do they need to feel safe? And what do, what do they mean by safe, right? So I have to have questions about it. And I ask them questions. Well, how do you define safe? What does safe feel like to you? Blah, blah, blah. And then I find out what it meant. It meant that they didn't want to go back to their cell block because they had a bunch of other detainees on the cell block taunting them and yelling at them and trying to do whatever, make them look bad because they were cooperating with the interrogator. Right. Ah, I can fix that. So the need became what? What do you think their need was? Their need is going to be to have you as protector, to protect them against that consequence. Yeah. And the way I did that was so easy. Move wow. their cell. I moved their cell. I put them on a new block. I put some wanted to go to isolation. We had isolation box, which sounds terrible, but it was it was awesome. I would have wanted to be in isolation. They're air conditioned. It's your own little room. You get a little window. You're not bothered by anyone. It's beautiful, right? So the need, the motivation was to feel safe. The need that they requested or I came up with was to move them into a safer environment. Now I've done something for them. They, I met their motivation and they feel safe now to tell me the truth. Got so it. So that's where, All yeah. Right. So here's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. In that situation, on some level, you're perceived by them as the person who holds the power. Yes. How would you do this? Okay. So how do you do this in a situation where you're going into a negotiation with someone in a corporate setting where they view themselves as having more power than you do? And you can't offer that need for, for safety and that need, that motivation. Yeah, because it's different. They're not motivated by safety. They don't need to feel safe. They feel empowered. So maybe that motivation is for me to fluff up their ego. Listen, I got no problem bowing to people and kissing ass. I got no problem. So if you need me to kiss your ass, I will. But guess what else I have? I have all of my techniques and tactics that I can use on you that will still make a win-win situation. And I'll still get what I want because I know how to talk to you. I know the words that I need to do. I know principled negotiation tactics. I've created one called Bond. If you read my new book, I know how to assess your profile using one of my negotiation partner types. So I've already done all this assessment on you. And if I need to pad your ego, I will definitely do that while controlling the conversation to keep you principled. I know it's a lot going on. No, no, I'm filled with admiration. Uh, no, don't get me wrong. I, uh, no, 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 no. You're misreading me. I'm filled with admiration, and I think it's funny that that you have this level of confidence. And I would think if you're going to if you're willing to kiss someone's ass, that means you also have a beautiful skill to put your own ego aside, to put it aside. And to have what we call an NLP requisite variety. Do you know what that that means? An yeah. NLP requ requisite variety means that the element of the system that has the most flexibility controls yeah. the other elements of the system. So you have incredible requisite variety. You have variability in your responses and your approach. 
that the other person doesn't, or you wouldn't be able to get your outcome. So yeah. again, this whole thing of being able to put your ego aside, mm -hmm. that's just the same as being put aside your judgment of someone who's committed terrible crimes. It's the same thing, fundamentally. Same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it was learned though, Paul, I will tell you, I didn't grow up this way. I grew up, and when I was in the military, I was a little fighter. And I thought because I was a woman that I had to prove myself constantly. So when in my junior, you know, self, my, when I was in my, I don't know, I guess late twenties, I was not empathetic. I was very directive, a little insensitive, and I had a huge ego. But as time went on, I learned more about myself. I call it jumping into a, a self-discovery and learning what really worked when you're interacting with humans. And all that other stuff was garbage. And I put it in the trash can and kicked it out. I'm like, no, it's not coming back. You motivated to do that by curiosity or by personal pain, by, by the old way of doing things was not working for you in relationships. Both. Which one? Both. 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 Yes. Because I wanted to be better and I wanted to have better results. And I was like, you know, there's got to be better methods. And this whole facade, what I'm doing, it's not even really me. This is a facade I'm putting up that's not being genuine. It's as a result of being defensive. That needs to go in the trash can. I that have to be, be a, me. That can be a terrifying choice for people. They have to put yeah. aside who they're used to being. And one of the things I've found that gets in the way with people having therapeutic change is they think, if I no longer have this problem, who will I be? I identify myself, my identity by having the problem. So yeah. I can see how this maps over to a therapeutic application to helping people yeah. overcome trauma and, and everything else. I'm, I'm mapping yeah. over what you do to some of the healing work I've done with people. In oh, the I past. love that. I, yeah. I think it's be, uh, for me, it was, I knew that the new me was going to be better than what I was experiencing. Okay. And how did I know? Okay. Maybe I hoped and I kept that hope. Like, I'm hoping this is going to be a better human than what I am now, because what I am now is not the best. And I know there's room for improvement. So on the flip side, I'm going to be so much better. Here comes the personal questions. Um, oh, is this the I one? I don't know how you read that. When I, did, when I did, here comes the personal questions. Was that the light or what was that? I don't know what that was. That was like, no, I think it was more shock. Like, oh. Uh -huh. <laughs> no, here come the person. Give it to me. I'm ready. Give it to okay. me. Okay. Did you have someone, a model for that behavior, a model of someone, a parent, a teacher, someone who modeled that behavior, being willing to put that all aside and make that discovery? Or is that just who you are as a human? Who I am as a human. Now, probably came from my DNA and definitely came from my parents, but I did not have a model. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm just always interested yeah. how, people, how people pass these things along. Because yeah. I want to know how people get an outcome. As someone who does NLP, the core, the heart of NLP is looking at people who do things with excellence and pulling out the structure of that talent and putting mm. it back together. So how do you teach this to your clients who are doing strategic negotiation? So you're teaching people, help me fill in the picture. Yeah. Your clients include people who are doing negotiations on all sorts of levels. Who else do you serve with your skill sets and your teaching? So anybody, entrepreneurs who are trying to get their businesses off the ground, anybody, salespeople, especially salespeople who want to perfect their conversation, ditch the pitch, say something that people don't expect, right? Ditch this is how you get the that. interest of people. I, I mean, I work with real estate 
owners. I work with um, realtors. I work with sales and they come to me and say, okay, I said this. And I'm like, Ooh, Ooh, to me, it's like nails on a chalkboard. I'm like, let's try a different tactic. Let's reword this conversation. And I hate them rewrite a text, an email or a phone conversation. And then they go after what they want. Um, there are a ton of C-suite people, right. Who are wanting to be better leaders for whatever it is. And some of them are amazing leaders, but they just feel like I need this edge. I need to say things differently. I need to figure out another method to give feedback, whatever it is. And those people come to me. Sometimes it's just people with an interest in human behavior and they want to know, right. I want to date somebody. I want somebody to fall in love with me. I want to find out if I can trust my partner. And those people come to me. So I really, you know, when you go through marketing and sales training and coaching training, they're always saying, oh, describe your avatar. And what does your avatar watch? And what do they wear? Okay, my avatar is a million different people. <laughs> they're not watching one thing and they don't look like one yeah. person. I, so I, it's, I yeah. Yeah, so it's people you- who want to com- effectively communicate. I get it. And this is very similar. I don't know if you've heard of my niece, Vanessa Van Edwards. Yes, I have. Of course, I know you have. Yes. And Vanessa says the same thing to me when I switched over from seduction to sales. I said, Vanessa, do I niche? And she said, don't you dare, uncle, because this skill is so applicable across the board. But it would seem to me that anyone who comes to you has to have two or three elements to their psychology. Number one, they have to be willing to put aside what doesn't work. Yes. And they have to be, I would call them not even early adapters, cutting edgers. They want to be uh, push the envelope, be on the very edge of what's possible for humans to do. Yeah, I love that. You just said said that very succinctly and clearly because that's exactly who needs to come. Yeah. Well, that's why we call the show The Influencer's Edge. Yeah. We want people who are right on the edge. Now, when yeah. I'm back, I love this stuff. You know, we talked about this off the air or earlier. We had a conversation, I think, last week. Yes. You yep. did a thing with the behavior panel. I love everyone on the behavior panel. For those do who too. don't subscribe to the YouTube channel, it's the behavior panel channel. You yeah. did with Chase, Scott Rouse, Greg Hartley, yeah. and Mark mm-hmm. Bowden. Mark yes. has been on the show. Chase has been on the show. I'm going to get the other two sooner or later. Oh, Greg and I go back. We go okay. years back. Yeah. You got to help he's me. Connect he's, the, he's the guy that I knew. And then I you met him. He's so super busy. It's just hard to get a hold of him. Yeah, it is. So you guys did a analysis of mm-hmm. someone who says that she had an encounter or a close encounter with a UFO. Yes. I remember seeing that. I watched it recently. I rewatched it. And your conclusion about this person is they were being 99% honest or 100% honest. Correct, Amundo? Absolutely. So I asked Chase this question. I'm not going to reveal his answer because of the personal discussion between he and I. Yeah. Do you think that person had a genuine experience and can you tell that when you're a deception detector or was it just that she believed that she had a close encounter it could be both right here's what i need to know i need to know if you're being truthful about telling me so are you telling me i believe i saw an ufo or i saw a ufo both can be truthful right i believe is leaving it out there saying 
It could have been, it could have been a weather balloon. It could have been something else, but I really think it's a UFO. And then I'm going to look to see if you're being truthful. I saw a UFO. You generally no, I saw it. There's no question. So for me, whether you believe or you did, what I want to know is, are you being truthful in those statements? And so that's what I'm betting. And with her, and gosh, it was so many years ago. I forget what she said, but I think she said, I don't know if she said believe, but she thinks she saw UFO. And I see not one indicator of deception in her, verbal, nonverbal. And the same with her son, who also claimed that he, he had an encounter, not with that same, not just with that same UFO, but aliens that look like praying mantises. Which is, oh. and oh, he, yeah. he, I saw the, I know, I saw the behavior panel analysis of that. You weren't in on that. No. And they said he was being truthful too, which yeah. if that's true, that's yeah. completely whacked out. I want to ask you one more distinction yeah. because early on when I was watching the behavior panel channel, they did something, they did an analysis of Amanda Knox. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you remember who Amanda Knox was, but she oh, was, I've done tons of analysis on her. I use her in all my training. Okay. Yes. I adore Amanda Knox. I think she was partially persecuted because of her extraordinary beauty. Amanda has something now called the Innocence Project, where she does her very best to help people become exonerated when they've been yeah. accused of a crime. And I believe that people who are guilty don't put their whole energy and heart into having a project like that. They just It's just like OJ said, I'm going to help look for the killer of my wife, and he never did a damn thing. So when I talked to Chase about this, Chase said, I don't think she's guilty. I think she has guilty knowledge. Yep. So can you make the distinction between yes. guilt, like she did the crime and guilty knowledge? Well, it all comes to your questioning, right? So if I'm asking her if she killed Meredith Kircher, and I'm going to vet her information, right, to see if she's lying or being truthful. But if I ask her if she know, knows who did it or if she was in the area, and I'm going to vet that. Those are two very different questions for two different guilty activity, guilty knowledge. I believe she has guilty knowledge. What does I that mean to you? She what knows about the murder. Now, what does that specifically mean? I don't know. I'm not a mind reader. She knows who did it. She was there when it happened. She oversaw it, but she knows about the activity. That's what I, and she keeps claiming she doesn't. And all the videos I have assessed on her, Oh my gosh, she's so incongruent with her behaviors. It's crazy. I believe she has guilty knowledge of either how the event happened, who was involved with it, all of that. I do not believe she killed Meredith Kircher. No, I don't either. John Douglas, you know, John Douglas is oh. later, you know who he is, of course. Oh. John Douglas is the who is he? John oh, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, I invented yes. the whole profiling thing in mind hunting. Yes. He says there's no way she did it. She could not have done it. She didn't fit the profile. Her DNA was not there in the room, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. All right. This has been more than fascinating. I know. I know. I love this. We could talk for hours. I know, and we will. <laughs> How can people continue the conversation? Do you have a free gift to give them? And we will also put it in the show notes, but what is the free gift that you have yeah. to give them? So if you, if they go to my website, right, all I have to do on the homepage, you can download a free, I call it truth to trust guide, right? And it's just five tips that you can start doing today. It's like a little mini reference guide, 
have it, download it and start using it because those tips are going to help you influence trust with people. If it's your stakeholder, your client, your kid, and that trust is going to influence truth. So all I have to go is to my company page, which is the congruencygroup.com right on the homepage. Um, you'll see a little link. Take me to my free guide. There you go. Oh, I have two more questions I have to yeah. ask you. Here's the yeah. big one. Yeah. So your husband and your personal relationships. When yeah. you were first dating your husband, did you, oh. did you profile him? Of course. Of course I did. <laughs> was, he, was he aware that you were doing it? He may have been because he knows my background. He also has a similar background. Uh-huh. Okay. I yeah. Yes. Yeah. He um he has a crazy background. Yeah. You have kids, correct? You have no. He does he was married for a long time before me. And so he has three adult children. So they're my stepkids, but together we don't have kids. Yeah. The reason I ask that is my experience with very young children is they can make up a story. And they're, they oh. can be very well-accomplished liars. Uh, um, I used, no? No, I used to get my niece all the time. All oh. the time. And my brother would be like, will you stop pulling that interrogation shit on her? I'm like, what? <laughs> okay, Lena, you've been one of the best ever guests we have ever oh, had. I want to I thank you from my heart. <laughs> and you thank know, you for having me I'm, very, I'm very readable. I'm an open yes. book. It's very difficult for me to conceal. So when I said... I mean it from my heart. I meant it. You could yeah. read that, correct? I could, yes. Okay. I'm an open book too. I mean, look <laughs> at me. Oh, I'm all over the place. <laughs> well, I'm not Italian. I'm Jewish. So I think okay. unless it's my, uh, well, my mom's passed on me. Her memory be for a blessing. But unless mm -hmm. I'm being guilted, <laughs> then uh, I'm yeah. an open book. Thank you so much. <laughs> Stay on with me when, okay. once we've gone off the air. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, I told you this is a badass I love, I'm so honored and thrilled to have this kind of guest on the show because it it, it just adds so much fucking freakish value. You're not freaky. Uh, I didn't mean to know that word is. All uh, right, I like it. I like it. All right. All right. <laughs> we'll see you again on the next episode of The Influencer's Edge. And I can't promise we'll have a guest of this caliber, but I'll try my best. <laughs> All right. And we'll see you next time. The Influencer's Edge is brought to you by the Invisible Influence Series. If you're ready to massively increase your sales by leveraging the power of subconscious persuasion, then make sure you text the word COMPEL to 411-321. That's COMPEL to 411-321. And if you're outside of the United States, then use WhatsApp and text the word COMPEL to 1. 909-741-1321. Make sure you put in your best email address because that's how we'll deliver the goodies. Thank you for tuning in to the Influencer's Edge, where you get the latest breakthroughs, cutting edge insights, tools, and techniques so you can leapfrog over the pack at sales, influence, and persuasion. Remember to visit our website at www.theinfluencersedge.com to enjoy even more great episodes like this one. We look forward to seeing you again on The Influencers Edge Show.